I want to remind you of something incredibly important this morning. I want to remind you that God is with you. God is with you. And he's not just like next to you. He's not with you because you came here this morning. God, the maker of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, the all-knowing, all-powerful creator God lives in you if you're a follower of Jesus. Isn't isn't that amazing? Isn't it scary that we can get used to that? that? That we can get so used to it that we forget about it. That we can we can become so familiar with the idea of the, the God of the universe living in us that often we act as if he's not even there. In fact, we act against him sometimes because it's so easy for us to get used to that idea that the God of the universe lives in us. We're not the first people to fall into that trap. We're not the first people to forget that that we are the children of the living God. That the savior of the world, that the king of kings and the lord of lords is with us. We're not the first. In fact, if we go back to the book of Acts where we've been, we will discover that Luke, the writer of Acts, knew that this was a big problem. He knew that that we as human beings, that the the ancient Israelites and and us, the, the, the new Israel, can forget that we walk in the presence of God. And so a lot of the first part of the book of Acts is Luke, re-emphasizing that again and again. A lot of the, the, the beginning of the book of Acts is a tale of two temples. And a lot of it happens around the old temple. The, 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 the temple that Herod built in Jerusalem, which was a magnificent, beautiful, amazing building. And Luke keeps reminding those early followers of Jesus and us, that God has moved house. That God used to be very specially present in a very particular way in that temple. But that's not his primary residence anymore. God's primary residence is in the heart of followers of Jesus. And so he has to make a big deal, firstly because it was a huge transition for those people. It was a massive transition. All their lives, they had known that God is with them wherever they are, but if you really want to to be in God's full presence, you had to go to the temple. 
You had to go to Jerusalem and you had to do particular things there. And so for them to now be told that, that the God of the universe lives inside human hearts is massive. But it's not the only problem. They had a problem like we do, that we get used to that. You see, even the Israelites had gotten used to the temple. And, and, and you can see it throughout the Old Testament that they got used to having God around and, and, and he became just a bit of a figurehead rather than the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth being among them. And so there are, there are a whole lot of things that Luke does during the first five chapters of Acts. He, he puts details into the story on purpose. Look, he could have written a lot of things. There were a lot of other things that was going on, but the, the things he put in there, he put in there for a purpose, and one of them was to reinforce this thing over and over and over again in people's minds that God didn't live in a temple made with hands anymore. He lived in the hearts of the followers of Jesus Christ. And so this reminder that God is with us, he's seen in the first few chapters, this, this idea of God being with us is reinforced through the story of Pentecost where, where the, 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 the flame comes down and the wind blows because that was how God was present in the old temple. And now he comes on people. He, he, he reinforces it in the story of, of them talking in different tongues that this God isn't just for the temple, he's also for everybody. The stories of miracles and healings. That was all stuff that was supposed to be part of temple worship. And then at the end of chapter four, he reinforces this idea in a really particular way. So this is the lesson that he's trying to teach over and over again, is that the temple of Jesus' community is now where people encounter God's generosity, healing presence, and salvation. It's not just a place where you spiritually encounter God, but it's a place where you physically encounter God through things like healing and through things like generosity. It's why quite a few times he pops in that idea that we see at the end of Acts chapter four. All the believers, verse 32, had one, were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that, they were, that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. Now, I've heard people try to, to cram modern economics into that verse. And they try to say, no, no, this is a, you know, the early church had this, I don't know, communist or socialist or, or this capitalist idea. And, and the truth is, Luke has no reference to any of that stuff. But what he's trying to show people is that when we encounter Jesus, when we are his people, our job isn't just to worship him, but it's also to show his goodness. You see, the old temple was supposed to be that. It was a place where the poor were supposed to, become, to, were supposed to come to be provided with food. And, and the storehouses were there for, to help the nation when the nation was in trouble and when people could no longer eat and could no longer fend for themselves. 
But we know that that temple had become a place where the poor were exploited. That's why Jesus gets so angry and turns over the tables. Because, because traders were putting barriers in the way of people to buy sacrifices. And so this idea that the temple of God is now this community that instead of being greedy, they are generous. Instead of being selfish, they are selfless. Instead of hoarding, they give freely because that's what the temple in the Old Testament was supposed to be. And it's what you and I are supposed to be. If you read Deuteronomy 14 and 15, you will see the laws around helping of the poor in the temple. And so again and again, this message is reinforced that all the things that God's presence meant in that old temple is now present in the hearts and in the community of new believers. All of it. We can't be selective. We can't say, well, it's this and this. It's not. It's all of it. And Jesus reinforces that message when he says, I've, I've not only come to bring salvation, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, but I've also come to set the captives free, to restore sight, to give prosperity to those who are poor. And so this reminder again and again that we, we are God's new temple. And so now Acts chapter five goes on to unpack a few more stories that point to this new Christian community, this community of believers as being the place where God lives in reality. And the first story, honestly, is quite scary because Luke wants to reinforce that the presence of God is no ordinary place. The truth is, some places it's quite easy to feel like you're in the presence of God. And, and the, the, the temple in Jerusalem would have been one of those places. It was big and it was grand and it, it exudes power. If you've ever been to Washington, D.C. in the States, the architecture in Washington, D.C. is very intentionally there to exude power, to tell people that visit this place, we're a powerful nation. And so the temple did that. But now, the temple is in people's hearts, and some of us don't exude power. Some of us don't exude awesomeness. <laughs> but God wants to remind us that it's not about us, it's about him. And so this first story reminds us that God's presence is also a matter of holiness and truth. That this God of the universe, although so much of it is, is about goodness and, and kindness and helping and, and, and being free, we can never forget that that the presence of God is a place of real holiness and real truth. And so he starts with this bizarre story. He didn't need to put it in there, and I've got to be honest, the other preachers, when we got to dividing up who was going to preach what chapter, everybody was like, I'm out for chapter five. Because if you know the Bible, it's that story of Ananias and Sapphira, two people who bring 
an offering to God and die <laughs> during the offering. <laughs> so let me read it to you. Well, let me tell you briefly. So at the end of chapter four, uh, there's a little, after it talks about how they shared everything, it says this guy called Barnabas, who we will hear about later on, sells a property and he takes all the money and he gives it to the apostles and he says this is to help the, the church. And, and, and here it all is for you. And then another couple called Ananias and Sapphira, they also sell a property, but they decide they're going to not be honest about how much it was sold for. And they come to the apostles and they present them, well, first Ananias comes, and, and then Peter says this in chapter five, verse three. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it sold, wasn't, it the, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. And great fear seized all who heard what had happened. I love that last little line there. It's like, can you imagine? Imagine we're having a church service, we take up the offering, and somebody drops dead. Imagine going out and, whoa, what happened? One of two things is going to happen. Nobody's going to come to church next Sunday, or everybody's going to come to church next Sunday. I mean, let's not kid ourselves with their credit cards and their wallets. Now, now I, I, what is, why did Luke put this in here? Does he want to scare people? No. He wants to remind us that the presence of God is a holy place. That yes, God is our Father, and He's a loving and good Father. And, and He cares for us, but He is holy. You see, what He's, what he's doing is He's helping those early disciples, they, they would immediately remember a story that's found in the book of Leviticus in chapter 10. Aaron, the first priest, his two sons, he had a couple of sons that weren't great. They were not good people. And they offered a sacrifice in, in Leviticus chapter 10. Aaron's sons, Nadab and, Nadab and Abihu, took their censers, those are the things that have the incense in them, put fire in them and added incense. And they offered unauthorized fire before the Lord, contrary to his command. So fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them, and they died before the Lord. Moses then said to Aaron, this is what, what the Lord spoke of when he said, among those who approach me, I will be proved holy. In the sight of all people, I will be honored. Aaron remained silent. So this story is not to, to, help, to make people think God is mean. God is not. The story is not there to make people think God is vengeful because God is not vengeful. The story is to remind us and those early believers that God is pure and holy and, and can't be lied to, can't be played with, can't be tricked, can't be impressed by any of us, that he is a good, just, and holy God. And if we carry him with us, we carry that with us too. We don't just carry fun. 
We carry the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth. And we must, from time to time, pause and remind ourselves of this massive joy and responsibility of being the temple of a holy, truthful, and just God. So, a reminder. This new temple is a lot like that old temple. A second reminder that, Peter, uh, that, that Luke gives as he goes on to tell the story, because he just kind of ends there. So he dies, then his wife comes and tells the same lie, and she dies. And so <laughs> people are scared. They are. But then it kind of the story just ends, because I think Luke in his mind is, I've proved my point now. I, I, you see what I'm saying. God is just and holy, and you must treat him that way. Then... He goes on to, to display the power and wonder of the temple of God, the power and wonder of what God's presence does in the lives of people. Acts 5 verse 12, the apostles performed many signs and wonders among the people, and all the believers used to meet together in Solomon's colonnade. No one else dared join them, even though they were highly regarded by the people. Nevertheless, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added to their number. So there's a bit of a confusing couple of lines there, isn't it? Because one part of it says that everybody stayed away and the other line says everybody joined. So, so what's going on here, what's probably going on here is that people were afraid to join them in Solomon's colonnade because that was in the temple. And, we, and if you read the chapters before, you will see how much trouble they get into when they hang around the temple. But they don't stop hanging around the temple. Because it's a place of trouble for them, they still know that they need to be together. And so they, they meet probably to pray together, perhaps to listen to one of the apostles' teaching, perhaps to sing together in a part of the temple. And, and this passage seems to say to us that even though all these miracles were happening around the temple and around them, people were scared. Wouldn't you be? <laughs> but on the other hand, it seems to me that this community was doing other stuff in other places that was grabbing people's attention. Because remember, they're not just in the, in the temple. They're not just in the colonnades. It also says they're in houses and in the marketplace and all over. So it seems that even those who were afraid to kind of connect with them while they were at Solomon's colonnade, are somehow drawn to them because they see the way these people are living and, the, and, and they go into their homes and they get treated a particular way and they, they don't just learn about Jesus in the temple, but they learn about Jesus in their homes and from their neighbors and from their friends. And so, so they want to come, but they're afraid but it's also irresistible. Have you ever been in one of those situations where, where, where you're afraid, but it's irresistible? Recently, when we went on our staff retreat, we went to Lake Eland, and we rode the zip lines. Remember a few years ago, I couldn't cross that bridge? Remember, we made a big deal of it. You guys couldn't even fill in enough of that form that I would cross the bridge, and so I never did. But this time I did. Well done, John. Oh, thank you. I did. 
but, but I was filled with both fear and wonder. I did and I didn't. And that's what was happening. But it was this irresistible, I almost said thing. It's not a thing, it's God. It's in these people's lives. And even though they're afraid, they can't resist it because they see the goodness of God, the wonder of God, how ordinary people love them and serve them and aren't afraid to be persecuted. And so they are drawn by this power and wonder. And then, so now these people are coming and going, some are staying, some are leaving. Now, Luke goes on to, to say, okay, so these guys have been doing this and now they're back in trouble again. Chapter five, four, they were in trouble. Now they're in trouble again. And why are they in trouble? Because they keep telling people this is about Jesus, this is about Jesus, this is about Jesus. It's not about us, it's about Jesus. And so the, the, the guys in the temple who have a lot to lose here because they're losing their hold on power, don't like what's going on. And so they call the apostles in and they say, stop preaching in Jesus' name. Stop it. <laughs> they don't. And so they throw them in jail. Bunch of the apostles, Peter and with, they don't say how many of them, but a whole lot of them get thrown in jail. That night they miraculously get freed from jail and they all run home and hide in their holes. No, they don't. They miraculously get freed from jail, and what do they do? Straight back to the temple, and they start talking. And so they get arrested again for, I don't know, this is the third, fourth time for some of them. They must have had quite a rap sheet. And, and so they get arrested again. And so now they're put on trial, and they almost get put to death. The, 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 the consensus in the temple and amongst the leaders is we're going to put these guys to death. And then a Pharisee by the name of Gamaliel, who was a very famous teacher of the law, stands up and says, guys, I want you to think about this for a moment. You remember how other people have claimed to be the Messiah and they've just gone away? He says, you know what? If God is with this person... If God is with these, if what they say is true, the, no amount of us fighting against it is going to do anything about it. But the likelihood is they'll just go away because they're not of God. So let's just leave it. And it would have been nice to say they did, but they didn't. As a parting shot, they flogged the apostles. I just want you to, for a moment, imagine a flogging. Now, I don't know about you, but I often picture these kinds of things in like a movie scene in my head. It's not really real. But it was real. That they, they were whipped until they, they bled. That, that's what happened to them. For doing what? Telling people about Jesus. For doing what? For healing people. They were flogged. You can imagine the lawsuits. You can imagine the letters to the editors. You can imagine the appeals to a higher court. You can imagine, but none of that. None of that. This is what happens because they are a group of people who are saying, our master was a willing sacrifice, and we will be too. 
Verse 40, chapter 5. His speech, that's Gamaliel's speech, persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. The apostles left the Sanhedrin, rejoicing because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. <laughs> wow. Wow. What, what, what an attitude. What a, what a transformation. What a difference. God's presence, his true presence in them has made to them. Their first reaction is not to sue. Their first reaction is not to complain. Their first reaction is not to fight back, not to fight fire with fire. Their first reaction is to, to rejoice because they've been worthy of suffering for Jesus' name. You see, because they'd been transformed. Because the presence of God, when it comes to us and it lives in us, and we don't treat it like some place that we get to go to every now and again, but, but a real living, life-changing presence, he transforms us. Verse 41, the apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing because they'd been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. And what do they do? Do they go and consult their lawyers? Do they go and hide? No. Day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stop teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. They just went back to doing what they did before. Why? Because they had been transformed. No more a Peter who denies Jesus and who runs away. No more a group of people hiding in an upper room somewhere because they're afraid. No more a confused group of people saying, oh, Jesus, please don't leave us, please don't leave us. No more. What has happened? They have, they have come to this amazing realization that God really has moved house. That's the God of the universe, the maker of heaven and earth, now lives in me, lives in us. And that changes everything. And we are not going to live hiding anymore. We are going to live as the temple of God, not just in the temple where it's pretty, but everywhere. In our homes, in the marketplace, in the streets, everywhere. And because they did that, because they did that, and because the next generation and the next generation and the next generation kept doing that, we ended up where we are now. You and I are here because those people said, it's worth proclaiming the name of Jesus no matter what. It's worth demonstrating his power no matter what. It's worth living Sometimes in fear because of how powerful God is, it's worth it because it changes everything. It transforms us and the world we live in. And so I, I want to end this Acts chapter 5 story with asking you some Acts chapter 29 questions. Some diagnostic questions about where we are as, as God's family here at home ground. And I ask these questions of you as individuals and as with, from me as an individual and with us as a community. 
Have we allowed God's temple in us to become ordinary? Have we become so used to the fact that we are God's children that it's not a big deal for us anymore? That it's just a lifestyle? Or do we realize that the God of the universe lives in us and loves us and gives us his spirit to empower us to show other people that this extraordinary God loves them? Have we allowed God's temple to become ordinary? Perhaps we need to ask ourselves the question, how have we lied to God? How have we lied to God? How have we said one thing to God and ended up doing another? How have we pretended to our fellow community that we are one way when we're really another? Are we joining God as he displays his power and his wonder? I really think one of the greatest miracles of the early church wasn't all the stuff the apostles did. Those miracles are amazing, and God still does them. But the real miracle was how they kept loving their community, how they became selflessly loving to the world around them and didn't consider themselves to be the center of anything, but but God is the center of who we are. Have you perhaps given up on being a willing sacrifice? Have you given up on being a sacrifice that says, God, I'm here for you? Have you begin to say, it's actually not worth it. I'm just gonna go quietly. Are we still working with the Holy Spirit as he transforms us? Are we still willing to cooperate with him when he, when he does wonderful and easy things, but also when he does those hard things, when he allows us to be flogged? Are we still working with the Holy Spirit as he transforms us? Perhaps the big question for all of us, is home ground a home worthy of Jesus the Christ? Is home ground a place where people who are broken and lost can find Jesus? And where he will work in them and heal them and change them? I I, I believe it is but I believe we can be more. We can be Acts 29, and we can write it again and again. And together, we can show this world that God really has moved house, that he doesn't live somewhere far away and you have to do all sorts of things to find him, that he's right here in our conversations, in our meals, in our ministry, in our worshiping together, in our going to the shops, in our driving the car, in our interaction with our spouses. Because God has moved house and he lives inside of us. Let's stand and just acknowledge that for a moment. Why don't you stand with me? God, you live in us. The King of kings and the Lord of lords, the creator of heaven and earth, lives inside each of us. God, that is amazing. Thank you for that. Lord, may we as your people be be a good home. May we be a home that invites the world in to see who Jesus is and who Jesus wants to make them become. God, thank you that your the power of your spirit will enable us to do this. Thank you that that through your mighty power, you are able to keep us from falling 
and present us faultless before your presence with great joy. We acknowledge you as the only wise God, our Savior, and to you be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forevermore. And all of God's homes said, Amen. Amen. God bless you and enjoy being God's home this week.